This is the Commerce Church of the Nazarene podcast. Thank you for joining with us in our pursuit to love God and love others. This episode is from our study on Revelation. As you listen, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at commercecotn at gmail.com. Let's learn and grow together as we look at this bold, beautiful, and very hope-filled letter. Now, here's the episode. Hey guys, welcome to another episode on Revelation. Now, if you haven't checked out our previous episode, it's on interpretation. Uh, These are going to flow in a progression, so you'll want to be always uh, keeping up with us. Uh, But like I said last week, we're going to be approaching this book looking at the historical context of what's going on. And that's why we're calling today's episode the 1,924-year-old letter. Uh, so, so today we're, we're getting a little history lesson. Uh, and I, I love trying to understand the history of the Bible. I think it brings the Bible to life. You know, the, the first century, it was a remarkable time period. Uh, and, and it was so dangerous and complex. And even, even though that's the case, I think we live in just as complex and dangerous of a world. And so we owe it to ourselves to, to wrap our minds around Revelation's beautiful imagery uh, as we try to figure out how to be faithful witnesses to God's love in a world that, if we're honest, is pretty violent, filled with hatred, tons of suspicion. Uh, I mean, we're living through a pandemic right now. So many things going on. Uh, and so we owe it to ourselves. Uh, so, so this episode, we're going to be breaking down Revelation, kind of looking at its structure, but then also uh, looking at what we need to understand before we jump into the book. Uh, so, so right off the bat, the word Revelation is actually not the exact title of this book. Uh, the, the original word in Greek was, was actually apocalypse. Uh, but when it was being translated into English, you know, it wasn't really a well-known word. So instead, they used revelation. Now, apocalypse now, uh, man, that's a famous word. It's in movies. It's in books. Uh, conversation after conversation has this going on. I mean, the pandemic that we're going through, nuclear warfare, uh, zombies, whatever your, your choice is. Uh, ap- apocalypse is is kind of at the forefront. And the way that we understand that word uh, is often as this sudden event or events um, that are always violent, it's chaotic, it's, you know, it's, it's combining natural disasters and human actions all mixed together. Uh, and it's, it's all culminating in this, this end of the world kind of scene. But in the Jewish world, apocalypse was a way of writing. It was, it was known as apocalyptic writing. And, and a little snapshot of that writing style, we'll, we'll talk about it in a later episode, but it, it was designed to convey uh, the visions and revelations seen by people who were very prayerful, who were wrestling with what God was doing among them. And it was a way for them to be able to, to speak out those things to the people around them. Uh, so it's, it's not really how we understand that word. 
So later on, we're going to be looking at apocalyptic writing to understand it a little bit more. Um, but next, what we're going to do is look at Revelation 1, 1 through 8. Um, and I want us to read it. Uh, we're not going to dive into it super deep right now, but I think it's going to give us clues to what things we have to understand before continuing into this book. I, I think it gives us hints. So let's let's dive in. You can follow along on, the, on your Bible. Here's what it says. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So here we have this revelation. Who's it coming from? Jesus Christ. God gave it to him. Uh, now, now Jesus knew that these things must soon take place. So he's sending his angel to John to, to show him these things. So we have from Jesus to John. Keep reading. Who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now testifies and testimony, they're actually the same root word. And this word pops up a lot throughout Revelation. Uh, testifies is marturio, and testimony is marturia. So if you listen to it, you can hear a familiar word, martyr. That's where we get our word martyr. Um, and, and so we'll be talking about that idea, that concept. It's translated as testimony, sometimes witness. Uh, later on in verse 5, we're going to see witness. Um, and we have to understand this word if we're going to be understanding Revelation. So we'll, we'll think about that a little bit. Uh, verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Again, the time is near. This thing is urgent. But did you catch that? Who's blessed? Well, the one who reads it out loud and the one who hears it. See, this letter was intended to be read out loud in its entirety in the worship service back in those days. And that's why last episode, I wanted you to stop and go and, and read it in its entirety. We need to look at this book in, in its tire, in entirety because this was not meant to be stripped apart, pieced together, those kind of things. We have to take it as a whole. And the other thing that pops out in this verse is it's a this is the words of this prophecy. So we have to understand biblical prophecy. So we'll we'll be thinking about that next episode. Um, continue in verse four. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Here we we finally have the audience. So we need to understand these seven churches. We need to understand the province of Asia in the first century. What's going on? Grace and peace to you from him who was, who is, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. And from here on out, he John lays out who Jesus Christ is, who is the faithful witness, martus, there's that word again, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, who has freed us, from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. 
To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. And then here the Lord God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Here Jesus is saying, I am the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So man, right off, in in the beginning of this, this letter, we have so many things that we need to understand, unpack before we we go any further. Uh, so so let's let's dive into this book. Uh, let's understand it a little bit more. I it's broken into three main segments. Again, this thing was meant to be read aloud. So let's think about that. It's not broken up. It, it has a flow to it. Revelation one through chapter three. This is this is an area where God speaks to the church in the cities, and so Jesus Christ, uh, who has been risen from the dead, he appears to John on this island of Patmos, and gives him messages to be sent to seven churches in Asia, uh, which is or in the province of Asia, which is the western side of Turkey. And then uh, Revelation 4 through 18, then, uh, this is where God judges the great city. Uh, so John, is he's caught up into the heavenly throne room where he sees Christ, and, and Christ opens the sealed book. Now, the seventh seal, uh, you would think it's going to be the end, but actually, the seventh seal, it leads into seven trumpet scenes, which you can guess uh, that seventh trumpet scene, it, it doesn't end there, but it leads into seven bowls of the wrath of God. And, and John, then after that, sees the aftermath of all of that, the seals, trumpets, bowls, and it's all accumulating in the destruction of Babylon. And we'll think about Babylon in a little bit. But then 19 through 22, then is God re- redeeming the holy city. So finally, are these visions of the final triumphant uh, movement of God as Christ returns, which means the dead are raised, the final judgment is held, and the new Jerusalem is established as the capital of the redeemed creation. See, it's easy. It's not complex. This thing has a movement to it. John was, was trying to recite his visions in a way that his readers uh, and hearers would understand it. Uh, he he had a purpose for how he structured this whole entire letter, because it, it begins with these present troubles that are right in front of, uh, right in front of his the people he's talking to. But then he looks to things, uh, and he sees things intensifying, and he wants to warn them about those things. And then he finally predicts this ultimate end and victory of God. Basically, my, my summary of all that is things are going to get worse before they get better. And, and here's the main premise that I think this letter, uh, why he's writing it to these churches. Here are these Christians who he, they have to decide, are you going to fix yourselves to this great city 
that will receive God's judgment? Or are you going to fix yourselves to the holy city that will be redeemed by God? You see, John, he cares about these people he's writing to. And he's, he's not writing some doctoral dissertation. This, this, this letter wasn't meant to be analyzed and pick up, picked apart and moved around. No, he, he's not even writing this to be the end of the Bible. The, the New Testament, as we know, it wasn't even put together. Uh, who knows if John had even read all of the things uh, that were circulating that we now have as, in the New Testament. And so he's not writing it for that purpose. What is he writing it for? He's writing this letter to his people that he cares about. So let's think about that. Who is John? Who are, who are the people that he's talking to? So John, uh, some, some people have tossed around that this is John the Apostle, uh, but I don't, I don't think that's the case here. Uh, a couple things that are stacked against uh, that uh, understanding of who John might be. First of all, he makes no mention of the life uh, of his life with Jesus. You would think if this was the Apostle John, he would talk about specific uh, interactions with Jesus. Not only that, but no stories or, or sayings that were common with who Jesus was, his ministry, all of those types of things. So already you're seeing a disconnect. Um, now others have tossed out maybe he's the writer of the Gospel of John uh, or the writer of the letters of John. But again, I don't think that's the case here. Uh, not only are uh, with the gospel, there's no connection to Jesus in that way, uh, but the language used in the gospel of John and the letters of John, uh, the language used there is, is a different structuring of Greek. Uh, and so it's different grammar going on, different ways of structuring sentences, all these different things. Not only that, but the theology that is throughout these letters and, and gospel are all different. The, the general viewpoints on things are way different. And, and what also is coming out of Revelation is we begin to see some influence from Paul's ministry uh, because Paul was heavily uh, influencing the, the the early church movement. He was a major crafter of all of those things. Uh, and so we see some of that influence play out in Revelation, which means, hey, it pushes it further and further down uh, the first century timeline. So what, so what do we know about John then? Well, we know he's a prisoner on the island of Patmos because in verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation, and kingdom, and perseverance, which are in Jesus, who was on the island called Patmos. Why? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So here, he's on this prison island. And why is he there? Because of the word of God. The word of God put him there. It made him who he was. And, and so, if he was writing a letter to these people... He had to be a person who had influence over these churches, which means he was probably a pastor to these people. Not only that, but he was a theologian. He doesn't quote from the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures, but he really understands uh, a lot of Jewish thought. Uh, not only that, but he calls himself a prophet. Um, we see some poetic language all throughout, which we'll get to. Uh, so here, we, this, this John character who wrote uh, this letter, um, 
we 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 don't know a lot about him, but we know a, enough to to begin to understand who he was, why he was writing. Uh, so so let's look at this. What's going on that's leading up to all of this? Uh, John writing this letter. Well, the early church movement, it was growing fast. And in the later parts of the first century, it was especially moving quickly. Uh, but it was also filled with so many questions. I mean, look back at the letters in the New Testament where, where people are talking to these churches. Paul writes these letters to these churches. What's going on in the churches? Well, there's this heresy popping up. There's uh, a Gnostic thought that is having to be combated because uh, people in the church are bringing in these kind of pagan thinking uh, and trying to blend it with Christianity. There's practices of, of the outside culture creeping into these churches that, that Paul and, and the other New Testament writers bash against and, and, and call them away from. There's dysfunction within the churches. Read First and Second Corinthians. Man, the church in Corinth had some major issues. So we, we see that there's constantly these, these questions popping up all throughout the early church. But I think there's bigger questions at play. Um, questions like, what was God doing now? Sure, we know what he was doing with Jesus. But now, all of a sudden, all these things are happening, this whole movement. Where is it headed to? What's the purpose of all of this? Uh, why was God allowing followers of Jesus to suffer so much. It, there's persecution going on. What's, what's happening, God? And how do we interact with this culture around us when it conflicts with how we feel about Jesus, especially in this Roman culture, that, that a part of Roman culture was to, to worship Caesar? How do we do this? Most, uh, most church groups uh, they were made up of poor people. They were meeting together in each other's homes. All the while, these cities around them are, are celebrating and creating these elaborate temples, not to, to Jesus Christ, but to Caesar. Um, I think of those wristbands, what would Jesus do? Uh, I think that was a question going on in their minds back then. What would Jesus do in these situations? Are we just wasting our time? I mean, wasn't Jesus supposed to have all authority and dominion over everything? Then why is all this stuff going on? Think about what Paul says in Ephesians 1, starting in, in verse 18. Here's what Paul says about Jesus. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, hey, you who believe in him, he has given you a mighty strength because Jesus, 
He, where is he now? He's far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion in the present age. But here, these people in the church, they're looking around at the present age. And they're saying, wasn't Jesus supposed to be ruler over all this? Didn't he have power and, and uh, authority over all this? So why are we running into everything? Why are we wrestling around with all this stuff? Why are we facing what we're facing? And, and I think it, it caused this identity crisis for the early church. Who are we in all of this? So what were they facing? Well, let's think about that a little bit. The, the earliest traditions, and most scholars, they think that the, the letter uh, of Revelation was, was written around uh, 95, 96 AD. So what did it mean to be following Jesus during this time? Well, let's dive into first century um, Christianity in the province of Asia. Like I said before, it was on the western coast of Turkey, which also meant that it was on the eastern side of the Roman Empire. Um, and the seven churches that are mentioned are all in this western coast of, of Turkey. Not only that, um, but these churches, they were set up by Paul in the 50s, and so they were all interconnected. And what would happen back then, uh, these churches were on a popular trade route um, that Rome had set up. And so letters from Paul, uh, this letter uh, from John, they were meant to be passed out to these churches on this route and then dispersed from there. Uh, so it would reach the whole region. And they would pass these letters around. They would make sure uh, everybody was was being able to read and, and hear from these leaders of the church. Um, so, so you have all of that going on. But on top of that, there's a big Jewish influence in this area, especially after the Roman War with the Jewish rebels in 66 through 70. And th that's going to be a, an important thing to remember, this war that goes on, uh, all leading up to Jerusalem uh, being besieged and destroyed by Rome. Uh, they destroy the temple. And after that, the Jewish presence there kind of scatters. Uh, we have a big influx into the province of Asia. So not only do you have social and political pressures kind of ratcheting down from Rome, but you also have these tensions being created between Christians and Jews. Um, and, and, and it's just a very tough and difficult spot for the church back then. They're in this vulnerable spot. Think about it. All of their, all of their apostolic leaders were being put to death. Paul was put to death. Peter put to death. Most of the disciples put to death. Uh, all of their the people that they would look to for guidance, they're being executed for for following after Christianity. And and here's an interesting point uh, that I want to make during all of this time. Um, because of all of the persecution and, and suffering that was going on with from this war uh, that happened where Jerusalem falls, it gets destroyed, all Jewish and Christian literature from then on after this war, 
they begin to describe and use the word Babylon as this transparent symbol for Rome. Why? Because Rome had just done what Babylon did. They came in, they destroyed Jerusalem, they were killing their leaders. Uh, that's exactly what Babylon did. And so interesting, uh, interesting thing to think about when we're looking through Revelation, well, Revelation uses Babylon all throughout the book, and it has this deep significance and connection to the Roman Empire of John's time. There, there's a bunch of different writings from this time period that all use Babylon as that connection to Rome. So keep that in your mind. And, and if that's the case, then we really need to understand Rome during this time and dive into them a little bit more. Uh, so again, we're, we're kind of bouncing down the rabbit hole, but follow with me because all of this is really important for us to understand. So Rome, uh, ancient Rome, it was troubled with wars all the time. Uh, holding a, an empire that vast, it came at a cost. Uh, you had uh, different fires popping up that you had to squash down to keep control, to keep people subdued. Uh, not only that, but there were, there are a lot of battles going on on the eastern side of their territory, right next to the province of Asia. And so you have all of that chaos. And then on top of that, you had political chaos happening. Uh, Nero was an emperor, um, and we're going to talk about him in a little bit, but he commits suicide in, in 68. And then following that, that's during that war that I was talking about, following that, within two years, there's three different emperors, uh, and this civil war is breaking out all throughout Rome. So it's chaotic uh, right around this time period. On top of all of that stuff, there's earthquakes that have been written about that are devastating the province of Asia around the 60s. Uh, you've probably heard of Pompeii, this famous city that was buried within seconds uh, by this volcano eruption in, in 79 AD. And it just, it, it, you can go there and you can see, it's almost like time stands still. These people had no chance of escaping this explosion. And we know about volcanoes. When an eruption like that happens, not only does it affect that area right immediately around the volcano, but clouds of soot and ash, those would have spread for miles and miles, affecting uh, all sorts of things, and the word of that spreading around, this massive destruction that took place. And then on top of all of that, we have recorded famines happening in the early 90s all throughout this region. So, so imagine <laughs> all of this. I, I told you, this is a complex and dangerous time to be alive. But Christians and pagans alike, they're all trying to figure out how do we live in such a crazy world with our understanding of how it works? And more specifically for our situation, Christians trying to claim that God was sovereign, that Jesus, he was the anointed king of the world. He had all power, all dominion. How do we wrestle with that, with everything, all the chaos 
going on around them. <laughs> and I'm going to add, add another layer to all of this. Romans, they looked at Christians and they thought these guys were a strange, bizarre cult. Um, they, they looked at them as kind of a sect of Judaism. Um, and so not only did they not really like the Jews, uh, but then here's this subsect, this strange cult, this strange branch off of the Jews, right? And, and this, the Christians back then, they, they catered to the lower class. So it was made up with a lot of slaves, women, uh, poor people, um, people that kind of were the outcasts of the Roman Empire. And so they didn't get to share. Uh, during that time, the province of Asia was prosperous, but they didn't get to share in that. Uh, and not only that, but then they would meet in private. Uh, and then they were doing these strange things. So from an outsider's point of view, hey, why are you so private? What are these strange things that you're doing? It, in the early church, we have um, descriptions of, of how the church would function. And you had to be in the church group for three years before you could even participate in the Eucharist and communion. In, in participating in this very sacred moment where you're remembering everything that Jesus did and you're eating his flesh, drinking his blood. Um, and so from the outside perspective, they're like, who are these cannibals? And there was rumor actually spreading around that uh, Christians were eating babies in these private secret ceremonies. Um and so from the outside perspective, again, Romans looked at these people and they were like, these guys are crazy. And not only that, but all of their meetings uh, would happen during non-holiday days. Uh, and so all of a sudden, top on all of this, there's these thoughts of these Christians aren't very patriotic. In fact, they're kind of atheists. Think about it. These Romans, they're looking at these Christians and they're thinking to themselves, their main leader, Jesus, he was crucified by the Romans for being a rebel and, a, and an enemy to the public. So we killed their main leader. Why? Because he was causing unrest around the area. And not only that, but these, these Christians, they don't have gods like everybody else. And so they don't participate in all of our, our cultural activities, um, worshiping all these gods, worshiping um, and having these feasts, all these, these people, the, the culture around them, everybody's participating in it, everybody's polytheistic. So they're looking at these Christian groups and they're, they have this bad taste in their mouth about them. So if you were a part of one of these Christian groups, you can imagine all of this stuff going on. Your leaders are being killed, persecution happening, uh, all this chaotic um, unrest in, in political, social realms, uh, natural disasters that are happening. Uh, it would be so hard to find an identity, a sense of group, this question of who are we? And I think the early church was really wrestling with that. Who are we? are we? Are we Jews who are now Christians? Are we? But all these Gentiles are coming in, so what do we do with all of that? How do we live in a culture that's so different from, from how we understand how to live? 
all of this uh, pouring into uh, what these people were going through. So important to understand. And so let's let's think about that Jew-Christian kind of uh, interaction as well as the oppression that uh, the Christians were facing. Now, I told you to remember Nero, um, an emperor. He, he ruled from 54 to 68. And uh, when he was 17, he became emperor of the Roman Empire. And he was known as a tyrant. People hated him uh, because he was so vicious, so cruel. In fact, in 59 AD, he murders his own mother and then forced his leading advisor to not only quit his service, uh, but he forces him to commit suicide. I mean, this guy is bizarre. He's crazy. Uh, And in 64, it was rumored that he burned two-thirds of Rome. Imagine that, burning two-thirds of your main city. And the rumor was that it was to make room for his new palace that he wanted to build. And so when this burning happened, he, he tried to blame the Jews. It kind of fell flat. Uh, so he shifted his blame to the Christians. And that was the moment that began the first persecution of Christians from the Roman uh, Empire. And so a side note here, major thing to understand about Nero, and I think what paints a, a big picture for us in Revelation, here's this emperor, first one to begin to persecute Christians, all because of this fire that he started. And he's rounding up Christians from all over the place. He's executing them in so many inhumane, cruel ways. If anybody during that time had an image of a beast who was just filled with evil. It was Nero. I mean, this this image would have been burned deeply into the Christian conscience. This guy was ruthless. So much so that the Roman Senate declared that he was a public enemy and and forced out of power. In fact, he, he flees away. And he commits suicide in 68 uh, because he's fearing for his life. Uh, He was forced out of power by Romans because of how cruel he was, not only just to the Christians. And and actually, rumors were circulating around, man, this guy is so awful. I I don't even believe, it's too good to believe that he's dead. Uh, There were rumors going around that he escaped uh, east and was going to come back with a, a massive army to, to wipe out Rome because people were just so terrified of him and what he embodied, this evil on earth. Uh, so so here, here's all that at play. And because of this, this war that went on between Rome and Jews and the Jews, uh, and they destroyed Jerusalem, um, they, they were all about kind of keeping things at bay. So they looked at the Jews and they said, hey, let's fix this. I, I, know, I know we've had a rough past, uh, but, but let's try to figure out how to live in peace because they, they didn't want these fires popping up anymore. So Rome, they actually excused the Jews um, from some of the things that violated the Jewish faith. And, and that main thing was having to pray to the emperor as a god. So they were saying, hey, no longer do you have to pray to the emperor. 
Um, but as long as you pray for him. Um, so you, you don't have to worship him like a god, but at least pray for him to your god. Uh, and they kind of work out this deal. And that was great for Christians too uh, because they were being persecuted. Uh, but again, remember, Christians were Jews. A lot of them were back then. Even John was was thought to be a Jewish Christian because of all of that extensive understanding of the Hebrew scriptures. And so for a while, uh, a lot of Christians were able to, to escape some of the persecution that was going on. But as more and more Gentiles flooded into the Christian faith, it drove this massive wedge uh, that that began to separate these Jews and these Christians um, as they they tried to wrestle through what is who are the people of God? Do you have to be a, a Jewish Christian? So do you have to follow all these Jewish things? Um, or these Gentiles, they're saying, hey, Christianity, it's all about Jesus. We no longer have to do some of these things in the law. And this was a big argument that was going on. So this Again, we go back to this identity question. Who are the people of God? What does it mean to belong to the church of Christ? And, and this, this division happening between the Jews, the Christians, this persecution that's rising and building and building. So let's look at persecution. What was going on back then? Well, we actually have correspondences that we uh, can look at between government officials uh, and and the emperor about how they were handling um, these interrogations with Christians during that time. So it's it's very fascinating to be to be able to get a glimpse into what was happening. So so picture with me: if you were accused of being a Christian during this time, you'd be brought in, you'd be interrogated. All that all that needed to happen was have an ac- accusation against you. Now most most citizens or most Christians were not citizens of Rome, which meant that you were really really vulnerable. You wouldn't be treated well. Uh, you had no defense or power, really, uh, political say, none of that. Um, and so, if if asked uh, if you are a Christian, you could either say you were or you weren't. Uh, and so, what would happen is if you said you were. Uh, they would kind of be like, okay, we'll give you another try because, uh, hey, this is going to end badly if you're a Christian. So are you sure you're a Christian? Uh, <laughs> give them a couple of tries. But if they persisted, if they endured that questioning, they would be executed for being a Christian. Uh, unless you're a Roman citizen. If you're a Roman citizen, you'd be shipped to Rome. Uh, that's why Paul was so for- fortunate being a Roman citizen um, and being a Christian. Um, he didn't get executed on the spot, but but kind of got better treatment. Um, so that that's that's one thing. If you if you stuck to it, you're a Christian, you'd be executed. Now, if you denied being a Christian, um, then they would they would kind of work you through some steps. Okay, let's make sure because if you're a real Christian, uh, we know some things that you would never do if you were a true Christian. So they would. Uh, if you said you weren't weren't a Christian, they would make you worship the gods uh, that Rome kind of worshipped. They would then make you offer a sacrifice to the emperor's image, uh, and then to top it all off, 
they would make you curse Christ. Because here's the problem. The, the problem that Rome had with Christians was not that they worshiped Christ, but it was that they didn't do all those other things. They didn't worship these civic gods that were a part of the Roman Empire, and they wouldn't worship the emperor who was seen as divine and seen as a god. And that's, that's the problem Rome had. They were these polytheists, and they were like, why can't you worship the emperor? If you can't, then, then you're, you're basically spitting in the face of Rome. And that's why eventually it was banned. Christianity was banned. It was rooted out uh, and, and persecuted so heavily. So why is all of this important? Uh, why are you telling all of this, this stuff to, to me, Pastor Andrew? Well, here's the deal. If you were a Christian back then, think of all that stuff we've talked about, all the chaos going on. But not only that, but the division that's happening within the church, the division between the Jews and the Christians, all of these things. And then to top it all off, you have this decision, if you're accused as being a Christian, to either renounce your faith or you die. So, so John, he's writing Revelation to strengthen and encourage Christians who are going through all of this. And widespread persecution, persecution hadn't taken place yet, but it was happening. It was going on. And not only that, but soon after, it was about to ramp up. And John believed it would. He even says in Revelation that it would. Chapters 2 and 3, when he's talking to these seven churches, three of the churches, he says, have already faced persecution. And in, in one of the churches, he says, watch out, you are about to face persecution, right? So he's, he's talking to these churches. He's, he's telling us, hey, persecution's going on. It's going to happen even more, in fact. In chapter 6, when, when he's having these visions, uh, in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, he's, he talks about these saints who are slain for being Christians, and they're crying out to the Lord, wondering how long this is going to happen, but they're just told to wait. Why? For more to die. Here's what it says. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar uh, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the world and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. You see, John, he knew more persecution was coming. Uh, chapter 7. Another example, uh, we have this picture of great multitudes in heaven who, have, who had come out of this great tribulation. Um, and here's what it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And jump to 13. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? 
and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You see here, this great multitude, uh, he's looking after this great tribulation that is happening. Well, think back to to chapter 1, verse 9. We read it. I, John, your brother and fellow participant in the tribulation. Same word in the Greek used uh, in chapter 7 as in chapter 1. So what is John saying? Hey, this tribulation we're facing, this persecution that we are facing, this suffering that we are facing, we're looking ahead after the fact. There's a great multitude no one could count. So much persecution is on its way. He has other spots in in chapter 12 and 13 um, of this kind of idea of how Christians must yield or they're going to die. In chapter 17, he he talks about Babylon connected to Rome. Remember uh, how Babylon is, is just drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Uh, so, so here we have this picture of the Roman Empire not only persecuting right now, but persecuting massively in the future. So John, he, he sees the conflict in front of him. And he also writes out of this expectation of more conflict coming. And it, it all revolves around this yield or die. Submit yourself to the empire or you are going to be killed. And if you, if you broke and denounced Christ and worshiped the emperor, guess what would happen? This is fascinating. In that time, if that were to happen and you were to denounce Christ, you're getting interrogated and you worshiped the emperor, you would be given documentation exempting you from persecution because, hey, you got, you got accused, but we went through this testing. We, we interrogated you. We think you're okay. So here's this documentation. You can't be, uh, you can't be said, oh, that person's a Christian uh, because we've, we've kind of done our due diligence. That's important. That's really important. Um, and we're going to think about that later on as we journey through Revelation. But, but another important thing, when you would denounce Christ and worship the emperor, you would have to confess this phrase, karios kesaros, which translated is Caesar is Lord. Oh, that sounds so familiar. Why? Because Christians during that time would popular, popularly say, Jesus is Lord. That was a common saying for the Christian. Why? Well, because you have this tension going on. The emperor is almost being set up as this rival of Christ as Lord. This is fascinating. Domitian, he was the emperor during the time that that John uh, is suspected to write this letter. He was the emperor 81 to 96. So during this time, Domitian, he would have all government proclamations. It would always begin like this, our Lord and God Domitian commands, and then it would go on and say whatever it commanded. Not only that, 
Uh, but whenever he would appear in public, the crowds were urged to shout out, All hail to our Lord, Karios, and to his lady. Same word there, Lord, uh, that's used in the New Testament. When, when stuff would be written down or mentioned in a speech and he was mentioned, uh, it would always begin with Lord and God. Not only that, but uh, temples that were, that were put up for Caesar, they would have inscriptions in them. Uh, and those inscriptions would, would promote Augustus as Savior and the Son of God. You see, the Romans, uh, not always, but around this time, it was heavily practiced that the emperor, the Caesar of the time, would be a divine figure that must be worshipped. Uh, it's reported, actually, that Domitian, he had, had a bunch of people executed for failing to worship him as a god. Not only that, but he would banish and execute leading citizens if they didn't comply with that. Uh, it's said that at the, at the games, at the Colosseum and, and some of these other spots where they did the games, they would have spectators. Uh, and if the spectators booed his team, they were put to death because that was seen as despising his divine nature. You see, for, for Domitian, to refuse to, to acknowledge him as divine would be considered an act of political disloyalty. It would be considered an act of treason, so much so that you would be killed for it. So think about that. This act of emperor worship, it was, it was basically this formality that people had to walk through uh, to kind of express gratitude for the empire. It was almost uh, the same idea of pledging allegiance to the flag, right? This expression of saying, hey, I'm all on board with this, this, uh, this empire. I have gratitude, and it's genuine for what it has done. And so for most, most Roman citizens, most people in the empire, they were polytheistic, so they didn't care. They worshipped all these different gods. There was no religious problem for them. But when they would look at the Christians, they were so they were they weren't unable to understand why the Christians had so much hesitation. Why not just do this? Just just pledge your allegiance to the emperor, and you won't die. So so what Christ, what what options did Christians have? With all of this tremendous political economic, social pressures uh, to go through the motions of worshiping Caesar, all of this going on, here are your options. Well, you could quit, right? You could say, hey, I, when I became a Christian, I didn't expect any of this. Uh, <laughs> you know, I didn't expect it to cost me my job, my reputation, my freedom, my life. So, I, yeah, I'll curse Christ. I'll bow before Rome. Uh, it's not worth it. Well, I'll give you a little hint. John, in his letter, does not go easy on these people, and we'll see it later. So you have that option, quit, right? Uh, you have lie. Uh, it's called situational ethics, right? My, my kids are, are hungry. They need food, but I don't have any money, so I'm going to steal 
uh, food for my kids so that they survive. It's it's a situational thing. I'm, I'm, and so I'm sincere about my intentions of why I'm doing it, right? So for people in this situation, Rome, they just misunderstand us. So why die over it? If worshiping the emperor is just some formality that I, a hoop I have to jump through so that I can live, well, I can't take that seriously. So I'm just trying to make the best out of a bad situation. Faith is a matter of the heart, right? That's not public life. Well, John, he calls them liars. And in fact, John reserves a place in the lake of fire for them. But that's an option. That's an option that's out there. Uh, they could fight, but come on, that's not realistic. Uh, the zealots of Palestine, the ones, the rebels, the Jewish rebels in 66, they tried to do that. They rose up. Uh, it didn't end well for them, <laughs> but they did it, right? So that's an option. Uh, change the law, maybe? Well, here's the problem with that. They don't live in a dem- democratic world. And, and most of the Christians, they weren't even Roman. So they had no political power at all. Uh, you could adjust, right? You could kind of blend in. Uh, you could you could look at some of the practices of Christianity and say, well, that's that's kind of back in Jesus's time. That's a generation and generations ago, right? We're in a different situation now. So maybe we can combine Christianity with some some of the good features of the Roman culture, some of the religion of the Roman culture. You know, we, we should be tolerant. We shouldn't disrespect it. Well, John addresses these people too. Uh, and we're going to look at that a little bit more deeply as we get to it. But that's an option. Uh, and then the final option is die. Here, before you. You have the opportunity, you have the chance to witness to the one God. You have the the chance to witness to Jesus as the only Lord, Karios. You have the opportunity, the chance to die like Jesus died. And John, he says, this is the only response as a Christian. So these churches, John's writing to, all of this stuff going on, all of this backstory, all of, all of this tension, not only politically, but socially, economically, uh, religious uh, pressures, people are being persecuted around you, you have all of these options you can run with, and, and, and as you're trying to figure out how to be obedient to Jesus, what should we do? How do we know what to do? This, out of all of this, this is why John is writing to them. He's writing to that situation. And so we need to understand that. We need to hold that as we journey through this book. Uh, and man, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come to life for us. So next week... I want us to to kind of briefly talk about biblical prophecy. I think that's important for us to understand. Apocalyptic writing, symbolic language, all these different things. Um, And we'll we'll maybe even jump into Revelation 1 and begin to unpack that. Uh, So uh, we'd love to have you continue to journey with us. Um, 
check us out on Wednesday nights. We have it live, uh, the Bible study. It's on Zoom. You can look on our Facebook page for ways to, to join into that Zoom conversation, or you can keep listening on this podcast. We'd love to have you here. Again, shoot me questions. Um, I know this is a lot of history that I poured out. If you if you got confused, re-listen uh, or shoot me some questions and I'll, I'll reach back out to you. Uh, thanks for joining us and have a great week. We'll see you next week. Thank you.